people of God had been in exile, they're coming home to Jerusalem. They see the steps leading into the temple, and as they ascend each one, they pray and give praise to God. They teach us how to pray and praise God in difficult times. Join us for this series every Wednesday night, 6 o'clock. Well, I don't know about uh, you who are joining us for the video tonight, but it's, baby, it's cold outside. Uh, when you get older, I'm discovering that I feel the cold in my bones and frankly throughout my body more than I used to feel it, but I'm feeling it today. In fact, I told Ann that if it remained this cold, then our Christmas decorations outside, which I've not gotten around to yet are going to consist of maybe nothing. <laughs> I just don't like the cold. I used not to mind it. So here we are, December the 2nd. We will go December the 2nd, December the 9th, and December the 16th as we continue our study of the Psalms of Ascent. When we last left you by way of video, we were at Psalm 122, and I told you that we are entering a series of psalms in the Psalms of Ascent that probably in their original context would not have been seen this way as much as we can see them this way in a more modern context, looking back on those pilgrims that were returning from exile and entering the sacred city of Jerusalem and ascending those steps into the temple precincts, we see them uh, and can see them, and I think it's biblically right to see them beginning in Psalm 122 as psalms about finding joy in the midst of worship. And Psalm 122 focuses more on the place of worship. Psalm 123 focuses more on the person whom we worship. Let me pray and then we're going to dive together into Psalm 123 and focus on the theme of this psalm, which is the person whom we worship. Father, even tonight we come into your presence. We not only lift up our eyes to you beyond the hills, knowing that our help comes from you. We lift up our eyes tonight to you, knowing that not only does our help come from you, Everything we need comes from you. We bow our hearts and minds and souls and bodies before you tonight. We worship you tonight. We give ourselves to you tonight. You alone are worthy of our praise and we worship you. We praise you, God, from 
whom all blessings flow. We praise you above all heavenly host. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We praise you as the one who is one God in three persons. We adore you and we magnify your holy name. Are your name that is holy in its essence. It is to you that we turn our hearts and minds even now. It is to you upon whom we look even now with the eyes of faith as we reach up to you. And we come to you in the only way that we can come to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. We come to you in the person and power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Though I'm giving voice to this prayer, those who are joining in this moment are praying with me. We pray to you with thanksgiving, with gratitude, with adoration, with confession, with the petitions that are on our hearts. We praise you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you will either indulge me for a moment or you will permit me for a moment or you'll turn me off and go to the next YouTube channel or Facebook presentation, but I'm going to go on a rant for just a moment about worship. I do not think there is any doubt that in our modern context in the churches, for the most part, in the United States of America, we have completely lost our way in worship. Now, no church that's lost her way in worship would stand up on Sunday morning and say, today we're doing non-worship. <laughs> this is an unworship worship service. No, we have so lost our way that when we've lost our way in many of our churches, we don't even know we've lost our way. We have so much non-worship that's called worship because we don't know what worship is biblically. So much of what is called worship in our time is really self-searching, self-seeking, that leads to self-affirmation, even unbelievably to self-adoration. Now, much of modern worship, even the ministry of preaching is driven by the needs of those who gather for worship. Singing in much, much of our worship is often sentimental and designed to be emotionally stirring, focused more on us as worshipers than the one and only one who is worthy of worship. Sermons are often scripture-connected, but not scripture-compelled or scripture-controlled. Many of our sermons are simply psycho 
therapeutic self-help offerings. And we wonder why so many of our churches are anemic. And even more, we wonder why so many of our churches really resemble the gathering at some rock or country music concert with a little God talk tossed in. It would be much more fitting in some settings, given the way we worship, that we did not offend God by singing, How Great Thou Art, that, but that we would sing what is really reflective of the center of our worship, How Great I Am. I'm really concerned about the church in America Every church, even our church, because our church is not immune to being pressured by those who want the church to be more about what we want and what we desire and what we need and what we feel is right for us. We want preaching to be more driven by the needs of people than by what is clearly declared as God's truth, which is God's word. I'm not immune to those pressures. They're everywhere in our culture. It takes grace and it takes discipline to stay focused in our day on what is genuine worship. We need, oh, how we need the psalm and the psalms generally. Uh, but this psalm in particular, Psalm 123, so let me read it for us. And let's begin together our reflection tonight on Psalm 123. To you, I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in heavens, behold as the eyes of Servants look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maid serpent, servant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. There are two movements in this psalm. The first is all about the person to be worshipped. And the second is about the priority and primary plea of those who worship. Worship gets wrongly oriented when we get confused about the center of worship. Uh, the order here is first on God and who he is and then on ourselves and what we most need. Uh, confusion about worship comes at two levels. First of all, when worship becomes 
primarily about us, then we become the focus of worship and God becomes the one who is to provide for us what we need. We lose sight of who God is in the essence of his identity. You see this all over the place in our country, in our churches. If you were to ask me what we need to recover most in our churches, I would say it would be the essence of the character of God as holy and righteous and pure and perfect. What we need most in worship is the elevation and the exaltation of the holiness of God. We have all but lost that. We've turned worship upside down. It's about who we are and it's about what we need. And God exists then in this upside down worship as the one who's there to provide for our needs. We have lost sight of his grandeur and his greatness, his magnitude and his majesty. So not only have we turned worship upside down, we've lost sight of what we most need. I need you to help me in my difficulties. I need you to resolve these problems that I face. I need you to give me what I'm looking for. God becomes like a... Well, he becomes some kind of heavenly-like Santa Claus. And we've so lost sight of the grandeur and greatness of God that we don't see the problem. (laughs) What are you speaking of here, Al? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? No, the, the, the person of God is paramount here. And until we exalt the person of God in terms of who he is in worship, we will lose sight. We will lose sight. We, in many places, have lost sight of what we really need. Listen to the psalmist as as he prays to you, singular, to you, I Lift up my eyes. The psalmist is not looking within himself for meaning and purpose. He's not worshiping himself. He's not looking around himself at the things that have been made or the things that have been given to him. No, no, the psalmist knows that Worship is not the inner look. It's not the circumreferential look. He's not looking around himself. The worship of God is lifting up his eyes. You know, if you lift up your eyes in worship, your heart will follow, your mind will follow, your feelings will follow, your Hands and your feet will follow. Your body will follow. Everything about you follows the upward look of your eyes to God. This God who is transcendent. This God who is far removed from us and far above us. This God who is enthroned in the heavens. 
And we lift up our eyes to the God who is who is wonderfully mysterious in his majestic sovereignty. He is God. You know, theologians speak of the attributes of God. And they take those attributes of God and they sort them out into two categories, the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Now think with me for just a very brief moment about three of the incommunicable. All that means is these attributes belong to God and not to me or to you. They're not attributes accessible to us as humans. Just think about three of them. One is God's aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's not a word that we use on the streets in Waynesboro, not in common parlance in our conversations, but it means God's self-existence. The child asks her mother, who created God? Now, the mother doesn't answer with a teaching about the doctrine of God's aseity. She simply says what is true. No one. God is. God has always been. God will always be. God is God. Period. The Son is the first begotten of the Father, not in terms of a created being, but emerging from the Father, the essence of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But God in his essence, the one God, is self-existent. You're not. I'm not. We're created beings. We are made in the image of this God. Secondly, God's immutability. It's a big word, but it simply means our God never changes. God's not willy-nilly. God's not moved to change by anything or anyone. Our God does not change. Our God does not change his mind. He is immutable. Thirdly, and one that's more difficult for us because we like to think of God a lot like us, it's God's impassibility. We use the language of feeling to talk about God. It's the only language we have. So we speak of God's love and God's wrath. But when we speak of God's love and God's wrath, particularly in terms of feelings, when we think of them in terms of feelings, we cannot use our categories because God blows up our categories. God doesn't get angry like I get angry. And he doesn't express his anger because my anger is always accompanied by sin and selfishness. Always. Always. 
yours too. God is love, John says. He is the essence of love. He is the fullness of love. But we dare not think of God in terms of some kind of highly idealized romantic feeling. God is able to help us because God is so different from us. His feelings are not like our feelings. They're pure. They're perfect. Impassibility means that however God relates to us, it is in the perfection of his purity as God. He's impassable. Not impossible, he's impassable. In that his actions toward us are in the fullness of the perfection of the purest and most perfect of thoughts and feelings and actions that we can't even reach. This is the one we worship. We are made in his image, but we are far removed from him and he from us. He is majestic in his sovereignty. He is glorious. He is glorious in his grace. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master. We, 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 we look up to God and we know that he is our master. Uh, we, we know that only good comes from his hands and he is glorious in his grace. And he is generous like the female servant who would look at her master called mistress, not in the sense that we use that term mistress, thankfully. But a feminine image here of God, father, mother image here of God, used to describe his grace and his goodness, his generosity and his kindness. We look up to God who from his hands gives us all these things that are good. This is the God we worship. We bow before him in worship that is accompanied by a right kind of fear because we are awestruck in his presence, that in his majestic sovereignty, he is so good and generous, so gracious and kind to us. And when you and I come into the presence of this God, we come with a plea. Our eyes look to the Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of God, our God, the name for the majestically glorious greatness of God, Elohim. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You don't want God's justice, nor do I. 
I don't want God to treat me as my sins deserve. I don't want God to treat me as my sometimes shallow and superficial view of him would evoke. Uh, When we truly worship God, we worship God in the light of his holiness. And when we truly worship God in the vision of God that captures us in the midst of worship, that we receive from his hand what we do not deserve, if we receive from his hand what we do deserve, it would absolutely obliterate us. Worship drives us to the plea for mercy. It's found in verse 2, but it's repeated twice in verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Now, why is he pleading for mercy? Because, look, when we worship God rightly as those who are seeking to serve and to honor God, we do so in a world that will treat us with contempt. Uh, We live in a bad place in a bad situation when it's not the world that we are concerned about treating us with contempt. It's our so-called brothers and sisters in the church. That's a mess. And yet this psalmist comes to this place at the end of the psalm. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt And then that word contempt is found at the end of, or in the middle of the final phrase in verse 4. It's a frame here. We've had more than enough of contempt, verse 3, the end of verse 4, of the contempt of the proud. Contempt, mistreating, maligning, mocking, misrepresenting, treating in a way that creates hurt and harm. And he shows us here the source and the substance of this contempt. Where does this contempt come from? It comes from the same source from which it always come. The, the source of being treated with contempt, the source of those who cause contempt on those who are the children of God gathered to worship God, that source does not change. He tells us. It comes from those who are proud, egotistical, arrogant. Those who think very highly of themselves and how they see themselves and the way things ought to be, these are those who treat with contempt. And they're described further as those who are at ease. It It is a rich word that means those who are comfortable in their condition, who are prosperous in their place, who Physically, for them, things are going well, and materially, things are going even better. 
and they look down their noses at others. They make themselves the judge and jury. Now the world, we should expect the world to do that to us. We should know this is part of the reason Satan has rule over those in the world that he might bring contempt on his on the church. We should expect that. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should be shocked when we do that to one another in the church. We've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn. That's the substance of the contempt. It's slippery. That's what it means. It's seductive. It's secretive. It's shocking. What do we do when we face this as the children of God, this contempt? We worship God. We don't fight back. We don't pursue vindication. We don't seek vengeance. We enter the house of God and we lift up our eyes to God. We pray. We praise. We listen to his word as it's proclaimed. We rest and are renewed and are refreshed in God. Jonathan Edwards says this psalm was written by a soul in deep distress. I don't know how any person can go through the time we're going through, not just in our culture, but all over the world, and not be in deep distress. My emotions have been all over the place during this time. My heart has been weary. My mind stretched and strained. times I've wondered where to turn but he tells me to you to you O Lord I lift up my eyes Father thank you that we know where to go when we need to worship. We go to the place that is designated for worship. And we know to whom we must turn when we get there. We turn to you. We lift up our eyes to you. We pray to you. We praise you. We magnify you, O God. 
Through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Have a great week. It's good to be back with you. I look forward to our next two sessions together and then the week of Christmas. Uh, I will be uh, releasing a, a Christmas message for our church family. And uh, I hope that uh, as you have opportunity, you will share that message with others. I want it to be a message of encouragement and hope, but I also want it to be an exhortation to people to come to Jesus and to find life where life can be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So look for that as it's uploaded uh, to our website and then put on our website so you can find the link to it and listen to it yourself and share it with others. Thank you for being a part of this with us. Uh, pray for us. I know many of you are at home and can't come on Wednesday night. Pray as we gather on Wednesday night as well. God bless you. It's, it's a joy to be with you.